The sermon text for this morning is 1 John 2, 15 through 17, found in your church Bible on page 1021. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, just on a practical note, I've been fighting a little something this, uh, this week, so I'm fine as long as I don't breathe or talk, but... Uh, if I cough a little bit as we go through this, please do uh, bear with me. Uh, the things that we love tell us what we are. The things that we love tell us what we are. So writes Thomas Merton. Uh, he a, was a Trappist monk. Uh, he wrote that in his 1956 book, Thoughts in Solitude. The things that we love tell us what we are. Merton's theology was often a muddled hodgepodge of Roman Catholicism and Eastern mysticism, but he was a keen observer of the human condition and especially the way that our hearts inevitably give themselves away in love. One of the things Merton wrote about was the ways that the things we love are oftentimes a revealing window into who we are. The things we love get to the deepest part of our identity. If you think about it, intimacy in a friendship is in large part the process of getting to know more and more about what the other person loves. When someone dies, what you probably remember about them most are the things that they loved. So how do we know what someone loves? It's a challenge because we're not always honest, are we? We're often highly invested in deceiving ourselves and others when it comes to this question. I think we want to think that we love things that are good and noble, even when that's not the case. So a parent, a parent wants their child to think that they love them. Maybe they even believe they love them. But if, when it boils down to it, they always put the needs of their career or, or their success before their children, what is it that they really love? Someone might tell their spouse that they love them, and maybe they even believe that they do, but if, when they speak to them, it's usually to criticize and belittle and threaten and intimidate them, what do they really love? Someone says that they love the poor and needy or civil rights, or women's rights, or the environment, or the unborn, and, and maybe they genuinely want to be the kind of person who does love those things, but if they never do anything to help those people or those causes, what do they really love? How can we tell what we really love? It seems like the, action has, the answer has to be our actions. Right? Say what you want about what you love, your life will tell the truth. What you love will reveal itself in the way that you spend your time, in the things that occupy your mental bandwidth, 
the things that you daydream about, the things that excite you, the things you spend your money on, the things that motivate you, the things that you always choose when forced to make a decision between two things. So ask yourself and, and try as best as you can to be honest. If you were to judge based on those things, not on what you want to love, not on the things you think you should love, but on what you actually treasure and value and pursue and desire most with your life, what would it be? What is it that you actually love? It can be an uncomfortable question because I think we know when it comes to love, not all objects are created equal. People like to throw out platitudes like love is love, but even a, a moment's thought reveals that that's not the case. What we all know is that the object of our love, the thing, the person that we love, is important. Some things are quite unworthy of the love of a human being made in God's image. You can easily think of examples, things that are violent or perverted or insipid. They're beneath us. To love them is, is less than your calling as a man or a woman. Some other things might be morally neutral or even good but it's wrong to love them more than you love more worthy things. So a career is good. But children are more important than a career. Personal comfort is fine, but your spouse is more important than your personal comfort. There's nothing wrong with sports per se, but the poor and needy are more important than sports. In fact, we can evaluate someone's life pretty well by asking, what is it that they loved? A life well lived is a life spent loving things that are worthy. A wasted life is a life spent pursuing things that are unworthy. And so again, ask yourself, what do you really love? What animates you? What stirs your passions? What occupies your time? What receives your talent and your treasure? On our brief passage from 1 John this morning, we're to consider the question of what or who is worthy of our love. And so let's turn there together now. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 John chapter 2. And this morning we're to consider verses 15 to 17. So if you remember the context, what we thought about last time we were in 1 John. <coughs> Excuse me. The apostles told his recipients that he's writing to them because he's confident that they belong to the Lord. He's confident that they know him, that they abide in him, that their sins have been forgiven. And so then in verse 15, where our passage for this morning begins, he gives them a command. In light of those things, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. <coughs> Excuse me. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now at first, that might seem surprising. Doesn't God love the world? Doesn't John 3.16 tell us that God loves the world? He loves the world so much, in fact, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. If God loves the world, why is John telling us here, do not love the world? And, and isn't the world full of lovely things that God made? Doesn't God want us to enjoy and delight in his creation? 
Doesn't God want us to stand in a, in a creek running through a redwood forest at sunset and love the things that he's made? So how can John tell us here in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world? <coughs> well, it comes down to what he means by the world. John uses the Greek word there, cosmos. It's a common one. And it generally has one of three meanings. So when, when the Bible talks about the world, it could mean the people of the world. <coughs> All right, we're going to get better here. That seems to be what John means in John 3.16, right? The people of the world. When he says God so loved the world that he sent his son, he means that he loved the people of the world. This word cosmos can also refer to the world as a created order, the universe that God's made. This is what John means later on when he writes the book of Revelation, when he says that the names of, of God's people have been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. He, he's saying before all of this was created by God. So when, when the Bible uses the word cosmos or world, it could mean the people of the world, it could just mean everything God's made. Or third, finally, it can refer to humanity together in rebellion against God. Humanity organized under the power of evil. And it seems like it's that third sense in which John's using this word here. He's telling us not to love the world in that sense. So he's not saying we shouldn't love people. He's not saying we shouldn't care about their spiritual well-being. He's not saying we shouldn't enjoy and appreciate the things that God has made. He's saying we shouldn't allow our hearts to be captivated, to be captured by the things that characterize humanity in rebellion against God. Now, maybe you're wondering, okay, well enough, but what exactly does that mean? What kind of things is John talking about here? What might loving the world look like in my life? Well, John tells us in verse 16, he gives us some details. He says there at the beginning of the verse, he says, for all that is in the world. And then he digresses for a moment to give us three specific examples of what he means by the things that are in the world. First, he mentions the desires of the flesh there in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. So, in Jewish thinking, which is most likely the, the way that John's using the phrase here, <clears throat> the flesh is a way of speaking about human nature, human nature on its own opposed to God, right? The flesh is kind of like the world just considered at an individual level, right? So when John talks about the desires of the flesh, it's a pretty broad general category. Uh, our flesh, our human nature comes with desires, things that just bubble up within us, right? Your natural self will, will rise up all sorts of things that are just part of the world. And John says we must not love those things, the desires of the flesh. John says your human nature is going to produce things in you that you must not love. Now, if you're paying attention, you might, you might realize that that actually puts God's word at stark contrast with the assumptions of the culture in which we live. So when John says, do not love the world, and he defines that, 
that world as the desires of your flesh. He is putting us at odds with most of the, the assumptions of the world outside these doors. So at the risk of vastly oversimplifying, a little over 300 years ago, there was a French writer and thinker named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And Rousseau broke with much of Western and biblical thinking by asserting that human nature is fundamentally good, that, that on our own, we are pure. To his way of thinking, it was, it was culture, it was society that corrupts us, that ruins our innocence, that teaches us to be greedy and lustful and envious. And so Rousseau said, virtue is found in being true to yourself, in sort of forcing off the conforming pressures of the world around you. Right? And even if you've never heard of Rousseau or read Rousseau, you've, you've understood his teaching through every Disney movie you've ever seen. Right? Every Taylor Swift song on the radio, every TikTok post. Right? Our societal motto is live your truth, be who you are. Right? The entire revolution in sexual ethics that has sort of swept our world in the last 30 years, all of our sort of transformed thinking about gender, it's rooted in this extreme subjective individualism. That if I want something, if I feel something, if my nature spits something up unbidden, it must be good. It must be sacred. It must be protected from anyone who would tell me not to be that thing. But here John warns us, the desires of your flesh, your most basic nature, those things are not good. They're not necessarily safe. There at the end of verse 16, he says, they're not from the Father. And so we shouldn't buy into the lie that whatever I want, whatever I desire naturally must be good just because I didn't try to put that desire there. John says, do not love the world. Do not love the desires of the flesh. They're not, he says, from the Father. The, the next example that he gives us there in verse 16, he says, the desires of the eyes. So verse 16, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. The idea here is the greed and the, the lust that is sparked by so much of what we see. It's not so much what's going on inside me, but John's talking about what happens when my flesh comes into contact with the things I see in the outside world. So you're watching TV, you're surfing the internet, you see something that, that instigates a, a, a moment of sexual lust. You're on social media, you see a product being endorsed and you think, my life would be so much better if I had that. Right, you see someone else being sort of celebrated and applauded. You see the way someone else looks. You wish you had their body, their hair, their makeup, their jewelry, their clothing. Right? All of those might be examples of the ways the desires of the eyes look in our lives. And here we have to be honest. A lot of times, these things in the world that, that spark these desires in us, that create these cravings in our souls, a lot of times those things are specifically designed to do just that. Right, we have to be honest about the fact that entertainment producers don't put things like nudity in their TV shows and in their movies in order to advance the plot line. 
right? It's there to, to hook you with, with a flash of desire. Most advertisers really don't care about whether their products are good for you or whether you even need them or you can afford them. They're trying to get you to have that flash of desire when you see what it is they're selling. They want you to imagine how much better your life would be if you just had what they're offering. They want to fill your eyes with desire so that you'll live and love and watch and buy in ways that fit their agenda. Madison Avenue doesn't care about your soul. TikTok, Instagram, they don't care about your soul. Hollywood doesn't care about your soul. And so we can't just walk through life unguarded and unaware. We need to be aware. We need to be watchful, careful about how we're being influenced by the things that our eyes see. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and then thirdly, he goes on there to talk about the pride of life or pride in possessions. Uh, the word that John uses that's often translated there as life, it has a, a wide range of meanings. Normally in the New Testament, it refers to someone's worldly possessions, and that may be how your Bible translation translates it. It's pretty clear that's what the word means when John uses it just a bit later in 1 John chapter 3, and I think that's what it means here as well. John is saying that part of what makes the world so spiritually dangerous, part of what it is that we must not love about the world, is the ways that we take pride in the things that we own, in our possessions. This is, in a sense, the flip side of the desires of the eyes. Right? If that's a longing for what you don't have, then the pride in possessions is a, a feeling of superiority or, or worth that's derived from the things you do have. And just stop to think about the fact that John could not have imagined a world like Northern Virginia. Right? If this was a temptation in his day where he's listing out sort of the big three examples of love for the world, and he talks about pride of possessions... Right, if that was a temptation in his day, where having two tunics and enough food to get through the winter made you rich, right, what would he think about the closet or the garage of the average Sterling Park Baptist Church member? Now, there's nothing wrong with material possessions per se. But when it's a source of pride, when we think that we're somehow superior to other people who don't have the things that we have, right, which is insane when you say it out loud, but is totally the default setting of the human heart, right? Or, or when our wealth serves as our confidence, right? When we believe that we're going to be okay because we own enough things to protect us from the future, it's at that point that the pride of life or pride in possessions sets in and we find ourselves loving the world. So take all of those things together. Take those three ideas together. I think we have some sense of what John means by the world when he tells us, do not love the world. The world is in you. It's in your desires. It's out there in the things that you see. As John, or as we mentioned earlier, John says here that these things are not from the Father. You know how you look for a seal of approval to make sure that something's safe and good? Right, electronics come with the underwriter laboratory tag on them. Toothpaste has that 
American Dental Association seal on it. Vitamins have the NSF international stamp. Right, you see those things and you have some confidence that this product is what it claims to be. It does what it claims to do. Here John is saying, everything in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, pride in possessions, he says that it's most certainly not stamped with the Father's seal of approval. It, it doesn't come from him. Uh, like toothpaste with traces of lead in it. Like a child's toy that keeps catching on fire. These things do not meet God's standard. They are not safe for us. They're not good. They're not approved. John says they don't come from the Father. Instead, they have another source. They come from the world. The world in that third sense. The world as humanity organized in rebellion against God. These things belong to the realm of things opposed by God and opposed to God. So brothers and sisters, we should examine our hearts, our actions, our spending habits to see how the love of the world is present in our hearts. I say how, not if, because none of us are able to perfectly navigate the temptations that come from within us and from without. Where are you prone to be controlled by your heart's desires rather than the word of God? How do the things that you see entice you to sexual lust or jealousy or covetousness? How are you tempted to take pride in the things that you own, to take comfort in them, to look to them as a source of ultimate joy and confidence? As we said at the outset, we're not always good at being honest with ourselves. We don't want to acknowledge that we love the things that we love because we want to think we're better than we really are. But again, the way we live our lives will tell the truth. So if you looked in the harsh light of day, the thoughts that you've entertained this week and the things you've looked at and the words you've spoken and the way you've used your time, what would you honestly conclude about what it is that you love? Where does your life manifest a love for the world? Well, assuming that you, like me, see some things in your life that you wish weren't there, what can you do? Well, in the rest of the passage, John gives us three motivations. He gives us three reasons we shouldn't love the world. These three ideas are meant to encourage us and strengthen us as we seek to root out the love of the world in our hearts. So at the time we have left, I just want to simply consider those three things and then we'll conclude. So the first thing John tells us is that we shouldn't love the world because if we do, the love of the Father is not in us. You see that there in verse 15. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if we love the world, John says, we do not love the Father. Your heart can only have one primary setting. If it's set on the love of the world, it cannot be set on loving God. And if it's set on loving God, it cannot be set on loving the world. This is what Jesus was talking about back in Luke 16, when he said that no one 
can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he tells us what he's talking about. You cannot serve God and money. You see what Jesus is saying? It's an either-or proposition. You can't love two things that are opposed to each other, two things that stand for opposite interests. You can't love the commanders and the cowboys. You can't love the Democrats and the Republicans. John says, if you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. And here's the thing. When John calls us not to love the world, right, it's easy and maybe even natural to hear that as a kind of bad news. As if you're just about to get a list of a bunch of things you can't do, a bunch of rules, a bunch of things you can't see or taste or touch or think about or do. But I think that's looking at it backwards. See, the fact is our hearts are desperate for something to love, something worthy of our love. As human beings, we are hardwired to love, to cherish, to adore. And so we are constantly vacuuming up things to love, right? A new car, a new relationship, a new house, a new child, a new job, a new purchase, a new movie, a new album, a new outfit, a new vacation, right? It could be big things. It could be an accumulation of small things. But your heart is always on a search for something that you can love, something that will delight you enough, something that will satisfy you enough something that will give your life meaning and hope and excitement. But what we find is that these things in the world, the pride of life, pride in our possessions, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, they just don't satisfy. There might be a momentary thrill. There might be a brief spark of excitement, but it never lasts. It never really soothes the longing in our hearts. And so we're always on to the next thing. Right? And you, you know it, right? You, you never have enough. The thing that you want so badly right now, when you get it, a little while later, you just desperately want more or something else altogether. There might not be anything wrong with the thing that you want, but the fact is nothing in this world was designed or created to bear the weight of the human heart. None of those things were made to provide you with ultimate satisfaction. And so if you look to those things as the object of your love, you'll never be content. Your soul will never be at rest. And that's because you're, you were made to find your soul's satisfaction in the love of the Father. You were made by God to run on, to be fueled by love for him. And think about just how lovely he is. Think about the beauty of all that he's made. Think about the wisdom with, with which he's created this world. Think about how loving and how kind and how merciful he is, showering his love on sinners like us through Christ. Think about his purity, his holiness. God is the sole object of our love that can satisfy our hearts. Can you see how it's good news? When, when John says, don't love the world, 
Because if you love the world, that means you don't love God the Father. What he's calling us to do is actually love the most wonderful, lovely person in all the universe. Right? It would be bad news if we were being called to love someone horrible. But we're being called to love our heavenly Father, who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us so that we could be his adopted children. So when your heart is set on him, on the love of the Father, then all the things in the world fall into their proper place. You can have a relationship and a child and a car and a house and a job. You can have all of those things and not look to them to give your life meaning, not fall into the, the love of the world. And so Christian, when God's world calls you not to love the world, he's calling you not to drive your car across a pedestrian bridge. When God's word tells us here, do not love the world, it's, it's calling you to, to not trust your life to something that can't handle it. Instead, set your heart on him. Love the Father. Find the truth of what Augustine prayed so many centuries ago when he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O Lord. That's the first motivation. If we love the world, we don't love the Father, and we were made to love the Father. The second motivation John gives us is that we shouldn't love the world because it's passing away. You see that there at the beginning of verse 17. John says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. The point I think is easy enough to understand. This world and the pleasures that it offers to us, right, the objects that it constantly is throwing out there for our heart to love, that world is in the process of passing away. That's true in two ways. On a cosmic level, God has promised to bring all of this, this era, to a conclusion. Right? The arrival of his salvation in the person of Jesus Christ has ushered in what the Bible calls the last days. This world, this system, this way of doing things is on the clock. It's heading towards a time when it will be done away with, when it will be replaced with a world that's made new. So as the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth, the present form of this world is passing away. John reminds us here that all of the things in this world, the cars, the sex, the movies, the money, all the things we're tempted to love, all of them one day will come to nothing. But it's not just on a cosmic scale. We also understand that this is true on a personal level. Everything you love comes to an end. You love someone. Maybe they betray you. Maybe they mistreat you. Maybe they move on to someone else. Maybe they love you faithfully. But eventually, both of you are going to die. And your love will have passed away. Eventually, you lose everything you're tempted to love, right? If you live long enough, you will come to a point where the things of the world will be nothing to you. Your career will come to an end. Your kids will move out. Your eyes will fail. Your health will fail. Your strength will fail. And the sex, the entertainment, the admiration of others, the power, the money, the possessions, they will ultimately bring you no satisfaction for your soul. Right, eventually we all die. We will be cut off from all the things of the world 
that we're so tempted to love. And so John's point here is if all of these things are coming to an end, what good is it to invest your heart in them? Why would you buy stock in a company that's about to go under? Why would you get on a plane that doesn't have enough fuel to get to its destination? Why would you put your life savings in a bank that's about to fail? Right, maybe you've heard of Smith Island, Maryland. It's off the coast in the Chesapeake, a beautiful place, famous for its multi-layered cakes. It's also, according to many scientists, going to be underwater in the lifetime of at least some people in this room. So after Hurricane Sandy some years ago, the Maryland state government offered to buy people out of their land so at least they'd have a shot to make a new life on the mainland before it was too late. But interestingly, there's been a real estate boom. More homes have been sold on Smith Island in the last three years than in the previous 11 years combined. Seems that people just don't believe the predictions or they have some kind of plan for keeping the water at bay. Now, if they're wrong, they're going to dearly regret investing in something that's passing away. And ultimately, I'm in no position to, to know with any certainty the fate of Smith Island. I sure wouldn't put my money in such a risky venture. Right, you can quibble, if you like, about the reality of rising sea levels. But what we do know from certain, both from our personal experience and also from God's word, is that this world is certainly passing away. Its desires will all come to an end. And so John's asking here, why would you invest your love, the joy of your soul, in this world? Why would you allow your heart to be captured by something that's ultimately a mist and a vapor? John says this world is passing away. And so it makes no sense to love it and the things in it. That's the second motivation. The third motivation is this. We shouldn't love the world because the Father is the one who gives us eternal life. Look there at the end of verse 17. John says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the command in this passage, the thing that John wants you to walk away with this morning is the idea that you should not love the world. And there in verse 15, the opposite of loving the world, you see, is loving the Father. He says, don't love the world, because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Here in verse 17, however, the opposite of loving the world is whatever, whoever does the will of God. It seems that loving the Father and doing his will, they're not disconnected from each other. So in verse 15, John can talk about loving God. In verse 17, he talks about doing his will. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, this idea that loving God and keeping his commandments are connected, this is not a new idea that John's come up with. You remember Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A bit later on in this letter in 1 John 5, verse 3, John will say this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. We're on good footing to say that if you love God, you will love the things that he loves, and you will keep his commandments. And again, your love, we see, shows in your life. 
You can say that you love God all that you want. But if your time and your talent and your treasure are all invested in things other than God, if they're all invested in the world that stands in opposition to God, then you're just talking. There's no truth to what you say. Right in larger context of the passage, we should understand when, when John talks about doing God's will here in verse 17, when he says, whoever does the will of God abides forever, what he means by doing the, the will of God is, is heeding the commandment of our passage. Do not love the world. Do not love the things in the world. To do God's will is to avoid the desires of the eyes and the pride that we take in possessions. And here John tells us that if we do the will of God, that is to say, if our hearts give evidence that we have experienced God's grace, if we show that to be true by loving him rather than the world, John tells us here in verse 17 that we will abide forever. The world's passing away. But John says the one who does the will of God, the one who doesn't love the world and the things in the world, he says that person will abide forever. And here John's pretty clearly picking up on something that Jesus said repeatedly. So in John's gospel account, let me just read to you quickly a bunch of places where Jesus affirms this truth. In John 6, 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. A few verses later, he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In John chapter 8, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. In John 10, Jesus talks about his people saying, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In John 11, to a friend struggling with the death of her brother, he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, Christian, the hope that Jesus offers is not just for this life. In many ways, following him, keeping his commands, not loving the things of the world, it will bring us into conflict with the current state of affairs. The world tends to punish people who don't love what it loves. But what we gain is nothing less than eternal life. A life with Jesus, free from everything that makes this world, this life, so difficult, sin, pain, loss, death. Right, as Mike taught about last week from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, believers have this sure promise of a life that continues on even after this life is over, even after this world has passed away. Right, when we die, our souls go to be with the Lord, and eventually he has promised our bodies will be raised and we will live forever in a world that's been made new. The passing away of this world with its sin and its suffering and its slim satisfactions will be good news for us when we are with him forever. Can you see how that should motivate you to love the Lord rather than love the world? Our choice 
is ultimately between something we cannot lose and something we cannot keep. It's a plot of land on a disappearing island or, or a mansion in glory. Right? This passage, what John says here, is aimed at loosening our grip on the rails of a sinking ship so that we're able to take hold of salvation instead. So friend, if, you're, if your life is characterized by a love of the world, if the only thing that captivates your soul are your possessions and things that belong to this world that's passing away, if that's you, maybe you're a young person. And honestly, you come to church, you hear the gospel, but you kind of want to keep your options open. You're waiting until you get out of your parents' house. You want to experience really what it is the world has for you. Maybe after you've had your fill, you'll, you'll see if you really love the world or if you love God. Well, friend, that's a dangerous game. The world has a way of intoxicating. The world has a way of getting its hooks in you. The world has a way of making it difficult to walk away, even as you realize that its pleasures never ultimately satisfy. So young people, don't learn the hard way that this world and its desires are passing away. Know that you were made for far more. You were made to live in God's love and to love him in return. Or maybe you've lived longer. Maybe you've tasted all that the world has to offer. Surely, friend, you can feel in your most honest moments that its allure is wearing thin. Surely you've realized that this can't be all that there is, that these fleeting pleasures can't satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. God has shown you great love. He sent his son into the world to do for you what you could not do for yourself. Jesus, God's son in human flesh, lived a life of perfect love for his heavenly father. And in love, he gave up his life on the cross as a substitute, as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for the sins of anyone who would turn from their love of the world and put their trust in him. Jesus rose from the dead three days later in victory over everything that stands against us, everything that excuse me, keeps us from God. And now he offers you life, life that extends into eternity, beyond the grave, beyond the passing of this world. Jesus offers you the love that your heart was made for. And friend, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to clean up your act first. You don't have to read a certain amount of the Bible first. You don't have to give money to the church before you can come to Christ. God doesn't need anything from you. And so he doesn't require anything of you, except that you turn from your, your sin and come to him in empty-handed faith and trust. If you have questions about what it means to know this love that God has for you and to love him in return, please talk to somebody afterwards. We'd, we'd love to talk to you more about what that means. You can talk to anybody you've seen up here. You can talk to me. We'd be delighted. And if you are a Christian, but your love for the Lord seems to have grown cold, 
if you see a distressing amount of love for the world in your heart, then what is it that you should do? Let me briefly recommend three things in light of this passage, and this will be where we conclude. The first thing you need to do is remember that your heavenly father loves you and wants you to come to him. I think many Christians struggle to change because they feel guilty. They feel ashamed to go to God when they've been caught up in sin. And that makes sense on one level. We steer clear of people that are angry at us, people that we've offended. But the gospel message is that by his death and resurrection, Jesus has removed from us all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our shame. And so if you are in Christ by faith, God is not angry at you. He will not reject you. He will not rebuke you when you come to him. He is calling you to come to him. You can be sure that however it is that you've loved the world, you are welcomed in the presence of the Father because of the Lord Jesus. And so there's no reason on God's end why you shouldn't come to him right now. He loves you. So remember, remind yourself that God loves you. Second, work to wean your heart off of your love for the world. Start by taking an honest inventory of your life. Again, I think this takes honesty. We don't always want to admit that we love the things that we love. Our idols are excellent at making excuses for themselves. But name what those things are. Maybe it makes sense to tell someone else about them. And begin to fight against the way your heart instinctively turns towards them. Remind yourself of what John tells us here. That the desires of the eyes, pride in possessions, those things don't come from your heavenly father who loves you. They're not worthy of your love. Remember that they're passing away. Remember that they are a bad investment of a human life. Remember that they will surely come to an end. When you come to the end of your life, you will not be glad that you've given yourself to these things. And then third, and most importantly, turn to the Lord in love. Right? Fighting against the love of the world is good and important, but it's not the most important thing, and it's certainly not enough. Uh, let's say that this cup, which was full of water, let's say the water in the cup represents love for the world. Right? If, I were to, if I were to pour this cup out, right? if I were to just dump all of the love of the world out onto the stage, the cup wouldn't be empty. It, it would be full of air. Right? Nature abhors a vacuum, and in the same way, our hearts abhor a vacuum. Something will fill your heart. Something will always fill the cup. Your heart is always looking for something to latch onto. And so it's not enough simply to drive out love of the world from our hearts. What we need to do is replace that love with the love of God. When that love is present in our hearts, there'll be no room for the love of the world. And in his kindness, God's actually given us ways to do that. We don't have to just sort of sit by impotently hoping that we can somehow learn to love him more. God's actually given us ways to do it. You probably already know those ways. In fact, the, the sort of old-timey song that we sang earlier, Take Time to Be Holy, 
That song is just about these things, the ways that God has given us to grow in our love for him. Read God's word. Read it often. Make a point of being here on Sundays to hear God's word being preached. Read and listen to it with an eye towards seeing just how beautiful God is, how glorious he is, how loving he is towards you, how worthy he is of all of your love. You see, the world gets so much airtime. The world is always talking to you, always selling its wares, always offering its love. And so we have to not listen to it. We have to listen instead to God speaking to us in his word. We need to pray. Love involves communicating ourselves to the one that we love. And so speak to God often. Enjoy the privilege of having a relationship with him. Talk to him. Share what's on your mind. Share what's on your heart. Tell him ways you're tempted to love the world. Ask for his help. And finally, spend time with other people who love God. Love is contagious. When we come together during the week, in small groups, in one-on-one meetings over coffee, with other people who love the Lord, the folly of love for the world seems to, seems to simply fade away. The love of the world seems to weaken. When we come together on Sundays to praise the Lord together, we find our love for God growing. Is that your, I hope that's your experience. That's my experience every Sunday. I feel like my heart sort of winds down a little bit across the week, and I come in, and I'm reminded in the, the prayers and in the scripture readings and in the songs and in the sermon that, oh, God is worthy of my love. He's so much better than anything the world has. Why is the world so attractive to me? Right? Every Sunday, we need to hit that reset button together and grow in our love for the Lord. And one of the ways we do that is by coming to the table together. Here at the table, we have visible reminders of the love of God for us in Christ. Here at the table, we celebrate our forgiveness. We enjoy God's presence with us. And as we do, the allure of the world fades. Our love for God will grow. And so let's pray together. And let's come to the table in love for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see in your word a command that is simple, but reaches deep into the roots of our hearts and our lives. We see that we are often tempted to love the world and the things in the world. They are immediately in front of us. We can taste them. We can touch them. And so, Father, we confess that we are often uh, guilty of loving the world. But we rejoice that you have loved us, that you have sent a remedy in the person of the Lord Jesus, that Jesus has lived and died and has risen for us. And so now we can be forgiven. We can be restored to your family. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make the world less to us and make Christ more to us. 
We pray, Spirit, that you would help us not to love the things of the world, and we pray that instead you would captivate our hearts by the one who is worthy of our love. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.